everybody. Welcome to the fourth episode of Serious Shit with Pam or and Heather. Serious Shot. <laughs> or Serious Shot. Whatever so, you're feeling. It's less uh, satisfying. The less satisfying <laughs> Serious Shot. Um, this week, we are going to have two people that Pam and I uh, respect very, very much here in Colorado that have helped all of us immensely. Um, over the years, teaching us and advocating for us. Um, Carolyn Martin from CHEC, Christian Homeschoolers Education. What's the other C for? Christian Home Educators of Colorado. You got it. Colorado. Colorado is the other C. Uh, she's amazing um, and is at the State House all the time. Oh, she lives uh, there. She lives at the State House, uh, yeah. helping, helping protect homeschoolers. Uh, and Teresa Rangam, who is with NBIC on the national level, she happens to live in Colorado, which is fantastic for us, um, but she gives us a, a much broader perspective on this issue because of her position as the national uh, leader in NBIC. So we're going to be talking to them this week. And the thing I love about sort of the progression so far of our, our, our interviews is that we're sort of building upon the one before. So last week we spoke with Judy Reynolds with FEC and the education committee in, in FEC. And that's a local Colorado organization working to maintain freedoms in Colorado. And I thought Judy gave us a, a lot of really good perspective on how to engage with uh, various um, schools in the state. She's got her finger on the pulse of all the schools, the colleges, the the grade schools, the high schools. She was on the Douglas County School Board. She is a wealth of information. She homeschools now. I mean, she she kind of has a, an experience across the board with, with this issue. And it, it was really uh, a fantastic interview. So if you haven't heard that one, I, I recommend that you go back and listen to last week's. Um, and, and sign up for her week. newsletter. Her newsletter yeah, is fantastic. Her, is, her newsletter is great. And so um, building upon that, talking about schools, um, everybody is wondering what the legislation that was passed, not in this past legislative season, but the one before SB 163, how that's going to affect them coming up because it goes into effect this next school year. And it was a bad, it is a bad bill that bad passed. Bill. Bad and bill. it's confusing and um it has a lot of overreach and parents are really concerned. Um, I know both Carolyn and Teresa spoke down in the south of the state and you were able to go to that earlier this week and I heard it was amazing. And yeah, so, like 125 parents showed up that all of a sudden care about exemptions. That's amazing when you think about, you know, I've been going across the state for years and typically maybe, you know, anywhere from five to 15 people show up all of a right. sudden everyone cares about exemptions. That's right. So that's great. And for those of us in different parts of the state that have difficulty getting down there for an evening meeting, I think this interview should help answer a lot of questions that people have for what, how to navigate this next school year. And so without further ado, all right, joining us today with Serious Shot are Teresa Rangham and Carolyn Martin. And let's have them introduce themselves. Teresa, go first. 
Oh, hi, I'm Teresa Rangham and I live here in Colorado. I raised my kids here. Um, I'm also the executive director for the National Vaccine Information Center. And MVIC was founded in 1982. It is a charitable nonprofit that was founded by parents of vaccine injured children to make sure that um, if you choose to vaccinate, you're vaccinating with the safest vaccines, that you have true informed consent. We don't judge your choice. We just defend that it's yours to make. Um, and that, that's in a nutshell what we do. We're a vaccine safety watchdog. And we, we're so glad you are. All right, Carolyn, you're up next. Introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Carolyn Martin. I'm with Christian Home Educators of Colorado. I'm the Director of Government Relations. I've been advocating for parental rights, religious liberty, and home education for many years. And um, uh, check, actually check.org, C-A-G-C.org, their support services um, organization for homeschoolers across the state. We offer very many different resources and events for homeschoolers out there. And we are so grateful to you and check. I know the two of you have been mentors to me at the Capitol and elsewhere across the state for many, many years. So today we are talking about SB 163, which is going into effect here in Colorado, affecting our vaccine exemptions. And so we have a lot of supporters who have been in this for a long time, but we also have a lot of new people new to this issue and why they care about exemptions. So let's go back to 2020 during the pandemic. Did we have, regarding our immunizations, our regular childhood immunizations prior to COVID, did we have a public health crisis as portrayed in the media that we were the worst in the nation, which you could say about any state and any particular demographic and every, any particular vaccine? Did we, I mean, we were, were we a tinderbox about to, you know, explode with measles or tell me, let's, let's get the spin straight right here. You tell me. I'll, I'll start off. This is Teresa. Um, the simple answer is no, Pam, there wasn't. And that, that evidence was presented and it's actually publicly available on the Colorado um, State Health Department's website where they have aggregate numbers of um, how many children at what age or grade are vaccinated um, with what vaccine. They have it right down to the vaccine. And in, in um, layman's terms, what happened is, is they started looking at um, provisional numbers of kids whose parents hadn't turned in the vaccine records and those kids were unvaccinated and th those numbers actually outpaced or they considered them unvaccinated until they got the paperwork. That set of numbers outpaced actual exemptions. And not only did we point it out, but CDC gave guidance at um, one of the ACIP meetings prior to our legislative session. And they issued an MMWR report that basically said, hey, for states and school districts that have these provisional numbers that often outweigh your exemption rates, you need to figure out what's going on with the schools. Because when schools collect that information, what we see is the uh, vaccination rates go up because most of these kids are vaccinated or there's a plan to go get them vaccinated. And case in point, really Brighton School District did that prior to SB 163. And they were, they were like at 95 and 96% because they had closed that gap, that paper gap. And, and that gap was known during the 2013 public engagement on the personal belief exemption. So this is not news. 
It was well known. And since 2013, the health department's been publishing this information. Um, I know that MBIC um, provided it on our portal at mbicadvocacy.org. I know many um, parents took it down and it, that information was ignored. The real question is, is what do we need to do to help schools discharge their legal responsibility to gather this paperwork? It is their responsibility. And what happened with what SB 163 by passing it is, um, schools got a, a buy on that and we put more burden on parents and we didn't need to do that. We did not have a, an issue here in the state of Colorado that could not have been solved by first following the law, the existing law and seeing where we landed. Carolyn, do you want to add anything to that? No, I totally agree with what Teresa is saying. It was an issue of paperwork. And I think um, the state just wanted their, they've been trying to get their hands on that data for years. And that was just a reason for them to do that. Well, and if I could be a little more direct about this. Um, so there was this statistic going out in the media to promote SB 163 that Colorado was, 88% in kindergarten MMR based off of a phone survey of 500 kindergartners in the state, right? 89%, 88% is not bad anyhow, right? Margin of error. But, and then you have the state data on the website at CDPHE saying, no, we're 90% across the state. The full complete data, which they ignored to promote this bill said, no, we're 90% 90, 90 or better on everything. So we kept using this in the media, the CDC 500 person survey of kindergartners, also without acknowledging that those four to six year old shots that many, many kiddos aren't getting some of those vaccines until first grade. So this was total spin to promote SB 163, but I don't wanna, I don't wanna rant about this, but it happened, it moved through. Um, you know, it, it wasn't a public health emergency. It was an agenda that was in process for many, many years. And the legislature took advantage of the pandemic conditions and limited opportunity for uh, the public to engage on this. So let's go to my next question. So what exactly changed with exemptions? Uh, we have three exemptions in Colorado. Longstanding, since 1978, um, we're one of 15 states that has a medical exemption of religious exemption, of philosophical or personal belief exemption. Now we have this state form and registry. So tell me about this, what changed? Teresa, you wanna start? Well, one of the things that changed was um, if, you, if you were previously taking a religious or personal belief exemption, um, your belief system was devalued into something called non-medical. And that's a strategy that we've seen used in other states because um, we, we cover all 50 states and watch legislation across all 50 states. Um, so it's a way to devalue its legislative creep. It, it makes it less sensitive when they try to just take them. Um, so A, you were devalued. B, with the introduction with the form of the form, um, I think what everybody's concern was, as, as you recall, uh, Pam and, and Carolyn, um, a few years before SB 163, the health department committed statutory overreach and they decided that they could issue a form. Not only could they issue an official form and tell schools that this must be used, which confused all our school districts and parents were in a panic, the form that they put out had compelled speech on it, 
which is a constitution, it's a violation of our constitution, the US constitution. So thankfully, HSLDA, Homeschoolers, Homeschool Legal Defense Fund, I believe, um, they threatened to sue CDPHE for compelled speech and for the statutory overreach. And, and it's on TV. <laughs> there was a report done by CBS4 um, where the health department said they had indeed made a mistake. So I think the fear that having a form brings up now that we have an official form is, well, we see statutory overreach um, and, um, in any way, shape or form on the form itself. Will it do more than what the authority that has been granted? Um, will we see compelled speech? The parents are, are going to be going, maybe they don't know they're signing something that's compelled. Um, some parents don't understand what compelled speech is. It's a fine line. Um, so I, I think there's concern because of the bad behavior of the health department and um, areas of statutory overreach that people already are aware of. They, they have very little trust and what will appear on this form. And I think they're very resentful because there was nothing to show that having a statement submitted by parents where you had guaranteed um, FERPA privacy, um, there was really nothing that we saw come up during the legislative hearings to suggest that that system wasn't working. Carolyn, what would you add to that? I mean, obviously the shout out to HSLDA for saving us uh, against that compelled speech. On that. Yeah, that form. And they really helped um, me to um, lobby the legislature to, to get homeschoolers out of these new requirements. Do you want me to kind of go into some yeah. of that? We um, So before 163, you had your certificate of immunization and you had a statement that just said, hey, I, I object to these vaccines for whatever reason, religious or personal. And that's all you needed to do. Well, we wanted to maintain that for homeschoolers. And so we were able to get an amendment that said, yes, if you're homeschooling, you can, you can do that. You, we, it's, you remain the same. You could just use your statement of exemption. But if you went to the public school for any of the part-time programs, for um, ROTC, for athletics, you would now need to file these new forms. Um, and as Teresa and I have talked about many times, they, the definition for school is pretty broad. So it includes things like camps and daycares and foster care homes and things like that, where you need to have these forms given to the school. So, so we're not completely out of it, but you can create a safe haven for yourself if you're homeschooling. And so we're just grateful for that. And HSLDA was a big part of helping us to do that at the very last minute because it was touch and go there. <laughs> yes, it, it was. And I just wanna just to beat a dead horse, up until SB 163, you either, if you were in public school, you would give your statement of exemption, which just a few years ago was just the back copy, the reverse copy of your immunization record. You would flip it over if you wanted to and say, I exempt from all, any, some, for these reasons. And it stayed at your local school with eyes on from your school nurse in a, in a file cabinet. It was not electronic, it was not shared. So SB 163, or you could also just write a statement in, with, you know, and hand it in. It didn't have to be on any type of form or anything. That was all legal. And that's what most people did. No big deal. But then with SB 163, you have, I have to use this form that gets uploaded to a database, which I call a registry because it has functions for a reminder 
to call you. It has functions for recall to say you're not vaccinated, you have to go home because there's some type of outbreak. And for home visits, where someone comes to your house uh, for targeted populations and, and offers you a vaccine that you may not feel that you have the option to opt out with the person of authority at your front door, especially if you're receiving any type of state services. So, and it's not, um, we don't have a good track record in this state of explaining to people their exemption rights, even though that is in our law, that every time immunization requirements are given, whether that's in person at a school or on their website, it must also include their exemption rights. And we've, we've really worked on that here in Colorado, correcting those school websites and school uh, newsletters over the last couple of years with some of our volunteers. So that's where we're at right now. And I wanna do like a rapid fire these are the questions that parents ask. And I heard you two speak the other night and some of these are those questions. So my first question with these three options, the medical and what I'm still gonna call religious and personal belief, but this, which because it's still in section 25-4-903 in our Colorado revised statutes, it's just also under a category called non-medical which as Teresa said, is to delegitimize those longstanding rights that were given higher protection over time. Um, so here's the, here's the questions. Is my data safe in, in CIS, in the Colorado Immunization Information System? Is it safe? Is it shared? Is it okay? So let's be clear about how you get into CIS. You can download these new official forms um, and uh, if you can find a doctor to sign them, uh, you may not get into CIS, which is the vaccine um, registry. But with regard to CIS, they are not subject to HIPAA. They are considered, the health department is a covered entity, which means they can share your information without your knowledge or consent with third parties for the purposes of surveillance, for the purposes of studies. Um, they list this on their website. It's also listed within statute, but this is where people have a problem. Um, whose data is it anyway? Um, shouldn't you be asked permission? This is what FERPA was all about when it was passed in 1974, is schools were handing out your students' information to third parties without your knowledge or consent. Um, and as you noted earlier, Pam, this is just, when SB 163 was a power grab. You know, and because of the bad behavior and the consistent trying to, to track everyone, um, nobody trusts the health department when it comes to CES. Um, people are very upset that it's opt-out and that opt-out doesn't mean that you are actually out, that they keep some of your information. Um, so, you know, if we're at an all-time low in trust, this doesn't inspire trust. Certainly the behavior of the health department um, since we started the more recent fight since um, 2014 on the bills that have incessantly been about, let's upload into SIPs. So is it safe? I will tell you that um, it doesn't appear that as of yet, SIPs has been hacked, um, but that does, hacking a system is something that can happen. Um, that's another area that, that folks are alarmed about outside the data sharing is that, um, a, a, malevolent force could hack the system. So safe is what? It's never been audited. The original um, law around CIS required an audit and it was amended out. 
So I think one of the things that Coloradans should consider asking for when they talk to their legislators is reinstating that original piece of statute that authorized us um, to audit it. What are we getting for our money? Because there's a new bill federally that is going to hand down more money to all these um, vaccine tracking registries to do more and more than what they currently do. And what exactly are we getting for our money? And why exactly are we being forced to participate? Why are we not being asked if we would, if we would like to? Teresa, can you please speak to how many people have access to CIS and what kinds of people? Because it's not two or three. Well, you know, I know that there are a lot of parent concerns around this, um, specifically around schools, schools that have um, things like Infinite Campus and Synergy, where um, everything's automated and you can see certain things in the school record. Um, so school nurses can get into CIS and see if your child is already there. If your paperwork's missing, they can go query CIS and bring it down. I am, apparently they also have the ability to upload. However, I wanna qualify that very strongly. Um, it's illegal to upload a student's personally identifying information from a school system like Infinite Campus or Synergy up into CIS unless you have specific um, permission from the parent to do so, okay? So that shouldn't be happening. It did happen, um, apparently something like that happened in Texas and they had to purge those records out. Um, so I'm not sure how you would go about proving it, but again, um, to your point, Heather, it's an area of concern parents have is, is who's looking at what, who's got authority to upload and download, and who's looking at your child's health record? You know, is it just the school nurse or is it every teacher? Because teachers also upload things like grades um, into the system. So I think that's a really good question. Exactly who is looking at your child's health record and your um, child's vaccination status? Because this is a very hot topic and that should be private health information. FERPA provides some guidance around that. So I would ask people to go to mbic.org to our frequently asked questions or FAQs. Look at the FERPA section. You can link out and learn more about that. And um, ask your school, ask them exactly who is looking at your child's record. Um, ask the school board, you know, there's, there's no, um, no harm, no foul. And certainly you don't want to look back and say, I wish I had known more. Ask your Teresa, if I could interject just as a parent in a school district in Colorado, we found out this year, our school district uses synergy and there is an, uh, there's a tab in parent view that is the immunization record. And we spoke with some teachers and found out that the teachers can also click on that tab and see our children's immunization records. So I guess my question, Heather, would be why do they need to? I understand exactly. why a school nurse would need to, but I don't understand why a teacher would need to. And again, I really encourage parents to become um, familiar with FERPA in that respect, because offhand, I don't know if, I, you know, at MBIC, we're not FERPA specialists, we're more like the vaccine specialists. Um, but there's overlap there. But we do keep information on our website and can certainly go out um, to the Department of Education and find out who is it that is supposed to have access because I believe that's outlined in the law. That's a potential FERPA violation. And I think that, that a system like Synergy has different protections where um, you can assign roles where somebody wouldn't have that access to that kind of information. 
Yeah, and I think that is a really good point. How many people actually have access to this? Think about that. There's over 170 school districts. Within each school district, there's tens of 20, I don't know how many schools there are in there, daycares, um, preschools. We've got other, other departments within the state have access to that. We've got researchers. There's tons of people have, have access to this. And one of the things is with data privacy is that medical records on the black market get lots more money. If you steal a medical record, you can get a lot of money for that compared to just your regular credit card. And I think people don't realize how significant it is. Um, and I, I don't have faith that their, their data systems are secure. Uh, in the law, it says it only talks about confidentiality. They have to keep the data confidential. That's the lowest bar when we're talking about data privacy. So really we need to think before we put our data and give it to people that we don't know what they're doing with it. I well, would make one last point about FERP, if you don't mind. Um, as, as Carolyn mentioned earlier, schools are defined very broadly here in Colorado, but when we talk about FERPA, FERPA for the most part only applies to like our public K through eight and any college or university that is receiving federal funds. So what happens in a daycare or, or these other places that also fall under that umbrella um, by virtue of Colorado's definition of school, realize that they may they are not subject to FERPA. A daycare is not subject to FERPA. You, as a parent, if you're using a daycare, you should be asking for that policy. What, you know, how are you keeping my information secure? Who is seeing my child's records? Because FERPA has no purview over that. Um, so if you're outside of a public school system or a, a, a higher education that um, is private and not receiving federal funding, you should be asking those questions because they may have their own policy. Some of it may be governed by the state statute. Well, and if I could just uh, emphasize, uh, Heather and I refer to this whole scenario as data is the new oil, right? We're a couple of data dorks and we know it. We've had to become kind of data nerds because of this issue. And it's not just about your right to exempt, it's your right to privacy. And with this database, so for the people who are new to this issue, so you used to give your information to the local school and FERPA protected it. It said you, no one at the state level, no entity can come and request this personally identifying information without prior written consent. And the short story of it is for years, this has been a real obstacle to what CDPHE wanted. And it was very obvious in their bills and in the rulemaking that FERPA was their problem. They wanted a way to bypass FERPA. And the way to do that was to create this state form where now you turn everything into the state and you don't have FERPA protection unless you fully vaccinate. If you fully vaccinate and get every vaccine on the schedule, you still retain all your FERPA protections at the, at the school. But if you claim an exemption for one vaccine, you forfeit all of your FERPA protections and now you're under CIS. And the immunization information system shares its information with CORHIO, C-O-R-H-I-O, that is the State Health Information Exchange of Electronic Medical Records. And any subscriber can, physician can pay a subscription and access anyone's records, not just his clients, his patients. And, and according to the testimony we heard about the immunization information system, that a 
a cis operator at like your local daycare is not restricted to her daycare to accessing data. She can access data for any student in the state at any age. This should be appalling to everyone listening that, that there's not these, you know, the firewalls that controls who sees your child's well, it's not even about kids anymore because it's from birth to death in the database. Once you're in, you're in there, you know, until you die. So let's get to another question. What if my doctor won't sign this exemption form? I'm glad you brought that up because I, I wanted to talk about the nuances in 163. Within 163, there was very specific language. Here you are, you can't, um, you're trying to find a doctor to sign your form. This law actually says, doctors don't have to, or and it's not just doctors, we say doctors for convenience, but it's any duly authorized individual in, in Colorado that can administer a vaccine that can sign this form. Um, well, what happens? Well, it's gonna, it's gonna be what we see happen in other states where we see these restrictions and these kind of online education modules. Um, if, if, you know, if your doctor, after educating you, because we're assuming that's what the game is, because we've heard that in previous testimony on other similar bills that failed here in Colorado, um, the doctor can say, no, I'm not going to sign it. Your only option, if you can't find a doctor, and we're going to have doctor hunting, we're already getting reports, parents are trying to find a doctor who will sign. Um, you have to take that online re-education module. And this module was supposed to be a uh, fair and balanced module based on evidence base. Um, now I haven't looked at it uh, in the last month or so, but I saw no mention when I last looked of Institute of Medicine vaccine safety deficits. Um, that's appalling to me. There are unknown risks and they're well-documented and they're significant. And the Institute of Medicine informs the vaccine injury table federally. And that's how we govern um, vaccine injury compensations. So that's appalling that that wouldn't be in there. Um, but here you're having to take this online module because suddenly you have to have third party approval for your personal and religious beliefs. The person who can sign off on it um, is saying no. And so now you're gonna have to take this re-education module. And you know, I'm not sure what's more appalling, the third party sign off or the fact that this person can refuse and you're forced into an education module because the whole premise is, you've made a bad decision. Somehow, because you want an exemption and you, you're not falling in lockstep with what Colorado believes you should have in terms of vaccines, um, it's not good enough that you don't want them. You must be um, uneducated. You require additional education. Um, so we're gonna provide that to you in hopes that you change your mind, I guess. A very one-sided. I, I just find that, super insulting because that that's medical tyranny that that's coercion at, at, at a very base level it's coercion and you know it's a it's a big judgment on your personal and religious values and it's very appalling when you think about how the united states was founded in the place of religion within our constitution but you can take the online education module it takes um anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes i think and it's gonna print out a certificate for you. Um, it's a, a certificate of completion, and that is now your exemption form that you take to your school. But in the meantime, in order for that exemption form to be filled out, that certificate of completion, um, you have to input student name, you have to put in all the demographics and so on and so forth. 
And it's very unclear what they're doing with this data, as I said, with, with their previous bad behavior at the health department, we believe that that's being uploaded in the SIS. And if it's not, that might even be more alarming if it's in a separate database where there aren't any statutes governing what they do with that information. Um, but we do believe they're keeping it. And, um, you know, again, this is about privacy. And it's also just about your personal beliefs and why would you have a third party even have to sign off? It, it's, um, it's rather insulting to the intelligence of a parent to say you've come to the wrong decision. So you must be re-educated. Carolyn. Yeah, and I just wanted to add, as you were talking about the CIIS, um, if you actually read their form for opting out, it says right on the form, the following demographic information is kept for opt-out individuals. So that's, if you try to opt out, you're in the system, you're doing the online thing, you say, oh, I don't wanna be in the system, they're gonna keep your first name, last name, date of birth, gender, city, county, and zip code. They're gonna keep all that, they said, in CIS. So yeah, there's so really- I have a no question. Oh, anything. sorry, Carolyn. Go ahead, no. Um, you know, we've seen re-education modules in other places and as far as I understand, they don't change the decision of the parent. They're not effective for, for increasing vaccine uptake. And I imagine that our legislators and CDPHE have access to that information. So um, am I wrong about that, that, that this doesn't change the vaccine behavior? So if it doesn't change the vac vaccine behavior, then is it really then just about getting our data? Am I, am I correct about that assumption, Teresa, that it has not been shown effective? Well, it's certainly my impression. I, 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 I'm trying to think if there's research on that. I'll tell you just from a really local level here in Colorado, um, that BVSD, Boulder Valley School District, um, when all this was going on, decided to tighten up and gather their paperwork. And it made the papers. And I kept asking them because of, of the deadlines, you know, what were they seeing? I wanted to know if it was the same as Brighton School District. Did their rates go up? And they, were, they weren't quantifying. They didn't want to quantify, even though the losses they have to release to me if I ask. Um, they, didn't, they didn't do that. So schools need to understand the law. Because when you ask for that information, you're entitled to it right then and there. Um, but what? Uh, where was I going with that? Um, Does re-education work? Oh, what made the paper when BVSD was gathering this is many parents were appreciative. They didn't know they had missed vaccines. So they went and got a plan and they got their kids vaccinated. They didn't realize they were behind. So I think some parents um, in terms of schools doing their job under the existing law got also got those vaccination rates up. Either the paperwork was collected or people are like, oh, thanks for letting me know. Um, but I don't think the re-education module, if you really want an exemption and you're going to, to that module, I would be very surprised if um, you changed your mind as a result of the module itself. Um, in fact, I think following the state law, just looking at how um, BVSD's experience was published in the paper is probably a less, um, it pressurizes the conversation less. Parents aren't under as much pressure. It's just kind of like, oh, I didn't know you needed that. Let me go get that. Or um, I didn't know I was behind. That was a pleasant conversation. Parents were happy to have it. 
I'm not sure parents are going to be so happy if some <laughs> this knocks at their door with the mobile vaccine lab out, out at the curb. <laughs> You well, know. let me give you two data points. I know during SB 163, I referenced uh, research out of Canada. Canada implemented a national re-education uh, program for, uh, to obtain an exemption. It converted zero people. So you can search for that Canadian re-education uh, module. Hey. Do you think we're all the same down here? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's in the research. And then uh, what else did I refer to? It was, oh, there was research that actually showed that when you try to educate parents, uh, they become more distrustful. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's, got a, it's called backfire effect in the research. <laughs> it's awesome. So we, and we- well, That's they're being coerced. Exactly. They know if it. You're being forced. I mean, it's one thing you sign up for a course to learn something you want to learn it. It's another when you're told, I'm not giving you what you need to enroll your child in school until you do this over here. And let me tell you what the federal law says, because there's, I think there'll be discrimination lawsuits or I, I, I will be surprised if there won't be. Pam, you pointed out that SB 163, um, if you are, are fully vaccinating your child according to school requirements here in the state of Colorado, you don't jump through these hoops. Now, MBIC was instrumental in getting um, the only law passed federally that requires vaccine informing. Um, and that was because our kids were hurt from vaccines. Our co-founders' children were hurt and they were appalled that um, some of the risks have been known for 40 years, were in the medical literature and their doctors never told them about it. And they said, oh, one of the goals of this law is gonna be if parents go in to get, get their kids vaccinated, they will be informed of the risks. And that comes in the form of the CDC's BIS, Vaccine Information Statement. Now under the law, all a doctor has to do is hand it across to the parent. It's a piece of paper. There's no requirement under the law that the doctor explain it. It's encouraged. They just hand it out, okay? So this is all vaccinating families have to do is they get this piece of paper handed to them. They don't have to read it. They don't have to sign anything saying they've read it. Um, it's just a piece of paper that goes across to them. But you've got people who want exemptions who my experience is, the people I, I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, this is a very thoughtful process for them. They've often witnessed that their child has had a previous reaction or that a sibling has. They're very concerned that the next reaction might be worse. Um, you know, that, that's a very common thing. So these parents study, you know, they're well-read and they're being told you have to take a re-education model. You have to spend 40 minutes, 20 to 40 minutes on a re-education model offer personally identifying information about your child to get something to print out. And, and we're, not, we're not even asking that of our vaccinating families. We are a pro-education um, organization. If you wanna vaccinate, we think you should have access to vaccines um, and we think you should have access to accurate information about their risks and benefits, okay? Um, this is not the same thing. This, this is force feeding education and it's really appalling and it's discriminatory because you've got, you're pitting the vaccinated against the, the differently vaccinated and you're requiring a different set of standards. You've created second class of citizens, you're coercing people. It, it's wrong on so many levels. It just, it's hard to not get super angry on the air about it. Well, let's, get, let's get some anger going. Let me, let me tell you some of the highlights from this education module. 
So I, I haven't seen the final form, but when I looked at the draft um, a couple years ago, just to remind everyone that this has been a long-term agenda and not something that just popped up out of public health emergency. But that, so one of the things that infuriated me was that it said aluminum is safe to inject in children in, in hundreds of micrograms, which is absolutely false. It is toxic. And there is a big difference between ingesting aluminum and injecting aluminum. And that was not recognized at all. So that was appalling. Um, many emails were sent about that to our public health servants. Uh, also, every picture in this re-education module depicted a child in a third world country that also had obvious nutrition, lack of sanitation, type of you know living in the elements, issues that are not uh, applicable risk factors for people living in the first world. But that is neither here nor there, because um, what I really want to talk about is what Teresa kind of hinted at when you're given the VIS or the vaccine information sheet, which is what the law requires for informed consent. It is this watered down piece of trash um, that's not worth the ink that it is printed on on a piece of paper. Because really, if, if you just want like the intermediate level education on that vaccine, you should go to the manufacturer's product insert. You, your, your mind will be blown on um, deaths and disabilities that some of our families, including mine, have experienced. It is night and day different from that VIS. So I just wanted to, to and Teresa is so diplomatic, but I just really wanted to throw the VIS under the bus for a second. Well, so, before you throw it too far under the bus, um, it wasn't always that way. The law was amended and it was essentially gutted. Now I'm our CDC, I'm our representative to the CDC. They have, they consult with us when they make changes to the VIS. And it appears that we might've won a small battle because that's the very thing that I, I say it much more diplomatically, but I, I state my concern around statements like in, in the VIS, the reason it's only two pages is they make, they're making a judgment that your attention span is so small, you will not read more than two pages. They make judgments around the type of language because they have to gauge um, the education level of everyone. They need to make sure it's easily understood. And I get that. But there's nothing in statute saying it has to be two pages. It's a choice they've made. Um, but there was a statement in there about, you know, you need to talk to your doctor if you're allergic to any vaccine ingredients, to which I said, um, okay, so on a good day, let's say that this is given out prior to vaccination and people actually read it. Um, how are they going to know they're allergic to anything when you haven't listed any of the ingredients? You know, that's a problem. And I said, in fact, I said, because this has become so watered down, when people contact us, we keep the um, package inserts on mbic.org's website. Um, we keep it under our vaccine and disease web um, section, and you can go read them. It links straight out to the FDA. Um, so they're always up to date. And so in this last consult that I did, in, I think it was March or May, it was earlier this year, brought it up again. It's like beating the dead horse, right, Pam? Um, and they actually said they were going to link out on it, digitize, that they were going to provide a link to the product insert. And I was really surprised by that. Um, it's about time. Unfortunately, a lot of parents don't realize that's not going to help the parent who is getting the vaccine is at the doctor's office and they're being handed a piece of paper because they can't click on that link. You know, I, that, that, 
packages or, or the uh, this used to contain so much more information. You should, if you read the original law, that really needs to come back. It was horrible that they amended it that way because it is too watered down. I would totally agree. Well, seeing how see how Teresa expresses her concerns and compared to some of us who want to throw everybody under the bus. I mean, I'm not saying anyone's wrong here, but one is more effective than the other. So thank you, Teresa. <laughs> Carolyn, I want to go back to you. <laughs> so if I'm a homeschooler, because I am, um, can I totally evade this online registry of we call sis? I mean, can I, can I just keep my records to myself? Oh, well, I wish it was that easy. Um, <clears throat> you can, if you just moved to the state, you could do that. <laughs> but if you have a child that was born in the state, you're already in the system. You can try to opt out, but we really don't know what happens to that data. I mean, we, I just read to you a little bit ago how they do keep some of it. So even if you opt out, fill out the paperwork, do all of that, you're still going to be in the system. So if you moved here, you're safe. Well, that may not be true. If you see a, a doctor uh, under <laughs> law, they are supposed to report. Now, there's no penalty. And in SB 163, they continue to say there's no penalty for not reporting, but they remind doctors they need to. And I will not be surprised um, as, you know, this is legislative creep. We're going to see an erosion of yeah. privacy continue. We're going to see an erosion probably maybe we'll see more restrictions on vaccine exemptions. In our opinion, the end game is take away all non-medical exemptions, leave people with only a medical and make it very hard to get, like you see in the state of California. That's, that's the end game. On the federal level, that's what they want. Um, and states, they're gonna pressure states to do that. But I also think doctors would be put under pressure to um, report, in fact, Doctors are afraid now, which is why, if you all recall, SB 163 was amended to say doctors would not be harassed for signing an exemption. Um, it still makes doctors afraid. As soon as 163 passed, I got a call from a parent who had a long-standing medical exemption. Her doctor said they would no longer be getting one. Uh, as far as I know, she has not found another doctor to provide it. Um, and they're not easy to get anyway, but that's how scared doctors are. So I think not only are they scared, I don't think that offers them protection. And I think there'll be teeth put into the law. If they don't start reporting to CIS, I think they might face some penalties. But well, you know, that I don't know when that's going to happen or who's going to introduce that legislation, but I wouldn't be at all surprised. Well, and let's not expose that there are, I mean, let us expose that there are financial incentives for providers to input data into SIS. Like, let's not pretend they're not financially incentive to do that, even though they do not disclose that to their patients. And so, and let's also not be in denial about that this was intentional to put doctors in this kind of middleman position where they have to say, some of them feel, that it's not within my scope of practice to approve your religious or personal beliefs. So I know I don't feel comfortable signing that. Now, I personally think that's a little bit cowardly because I think all exemptions actually are medical, but, um, but that is my own opinion that I'm inserting there. So, so let's go to a follow-up question. So when, if you have to, if you can't get it signed, 
and you go to this database and you're not comfortable with inputting all your data to the state because you shouldn't be, you should be distrustful at this point. Um, no good can come from this or any type of registry. But then at the end, instead of submit, it says print. So should I think or be led to believe that if I press print, it doesn't capture my data and I can just give the hard copy to my school or daycare or college like I used to without data capture? No. The simple answer is no, because I can tell you, I can look at the back of our website. If you file a, um, we have a couple of different things you can do on our website where it requires you to fill out a form online. You can report a vaccine reaction to our registry. Um, you can report vaccine harassment. So all those fields, um, I we've toggled some that are required because we wanna know that people who are reporting, we, we wanna be able to share their story. So we ask permission. So there, there are different fields that are required that they fill out. So if, if, if you, let's say you hit print and you said, you know, I'm not gonna give them all my information. I don't wanna know where I live. They probably have that turned on to be a required field that you fill in so that it'll print. Well, if it's required, that means the system knows there's information in there. So by hitting print, there's criteria that is probably being met and programming on the back end that it knows the field's been filled out. Um, I'm guessing that they have requirements for which fields you have to fill out, if not all of them being required. Um, so if it's a requirement to fill out in order to hit that print, there is the opportunity to take it in. Um, I suppose they could write a program that when you hit the print button that it erases, but again, I think it comes down to trust. Has the health department earned our trust in that respect? Um, I think if you ask every mom and dad that has showed up at the Capitol um, since this has been going on, their answer would be no. And it's because of how often they've had to go down to protect their rights. Um, how often they've had to say, stop grabbing my data. I don't want to be in your system. You know, so there's very little reason for parents to trust. You know, which is really rather astounding. You know, we have the federal government who's apparently very concerned about trust, but isn't willing to address and, and talk to people. I was just on the MVAC call, which is a federal call. They're addressing vaccine hesitancy. The subcommittee has no members from any group who um, would represent those who are hesitant. So to me, it's like nothing about us without us. And the stakeholders, stakeholder stuff that went on in SB 163, were any of you called? No. Yeah. Um, Carolyn, you represent homeschoolers that have these concerns. Some homeschoolers are homeschooling because they don't have trust, um, because they feel like their values are not respected in how people are educated, how their children are being educated. Um, you know, Pam, you're with CHCA. You see this all the time. It, it's ridiculous that um, a stakeholder event could go on on something that impacts this section of people and your opinion and your concerns aren't being addressed. They aren't part of the process or being heard. At least in 2013, some of us were there. Um, and this is the way it's going federally and on the state level. You're just not going to be asked. So it's very patriarchal. It's um, tyrannical behavior. Why would you trust anyone that treats you that way? 
Well, and as I just want to clarify for people who are maybe new to the issue that NVIC and Colorado Health Choice Alliance, um, formerly um, CCVC, we are designated state stakeholders on this issue. And uh, Teresa and I sat in on the um, meningitis stakeholder um, two-day process at the state level with a dozen other people to decide if we would mandate the meningitis vaccine. Um, and in that situation, the vote was against the mandate because the cost benefit wasn't there. You know, the cost of the vaccine for something so rare um, didn't, you know, it was far more expensive to mandate this vaccine for the state than the benefit of saving one in a million people from meningitis. So we, so it, what Teresa is referring to is, is we are designated stakeholders and for SB 163, we were not invited to the table to express our concerns and that is intentional. And that is also happening on the federal level with the NVAC where we, we have all these doctors uh, talking about vaccine hesitancy and no one in the room is a, you know, has any concerns or any hesitancy. This is, this is madness. And just so you're aware that we are making these types of bills uh, related to vaccine mandates without anyone expressing, it's everyone in the industry that has, you know, some type of skin in the game that benefits from vaccine sales. So that's concerning. I, we're running out of time, but I want to, I want to end with a question that is under the category of how is this legal? Um, so we're hearing at universities and schools that if you choose, and in the military, if you choose not to vaccinate with the COVID vaccine, then that's fine. That's your right right now under the emergency use authorization, no mandate. Um, then you have to wear a mask or some other types of restrictions, maybe socially distance. Um, I don't know, maybe have other types of things imposed on you. How is that legal and what should parents do about that? Well, um, I, it's kind of our opinion that there are gray areas in the law. The federal law around EUA says you have the right to refuse and to be informed of the consequences. I'd really like to know who's handing those out, by the way. Um, what, what consequences have you been informed of? Uh, but with regard to, um, you know, what, what will happen there, I think we'll see lawsuits you know, on it, it's pressurizing employers. Um, they're the filling in the Oreo cookie, you know, they're being encouraged to do the mandates. Um, and at the same time, if they wrongfully terminate or don't accommodate under Title VII of civil rights for religious accommodation properly, um, they get to pay back wages and pain and suffering if they mess up, you know? So I would really encourage employees um, a, if you're concerned about this, start talking to your legislator and help us reintroduce a bill that we had a few years ago that protected everyone in the workplace from all vaccines. And many thanks to Kim Ransom, Rep. Kim Ransom, who introduced a bill this last session, the same thing except just for COVID-19. As it pertains to kids in school, um, I really want to know how it's legal. I really think um, if parents have a concern about this, it's time to get an attorney on the phone and find out um, was there rulemaking on this? You know, how is it that schools are doing this? When um, rulemaking, let's be honest, it's a rubber stamp, but they will probably hold a rulemaking um, when it's licensed. But from that masking standpoint, even though this isn't an MDIC issue, we're aware of it because it puts pressure on people to vaccinate. So we do watch it 
my comment on masking, because we get a lot of parents calling us and I, again, it's time to hire an attorney in my opinion. Um, but I think what might be interesting is, is schools are saying, if you're not vaccinated, a student's going to have to wear a mask. You just outed that student. You just outed that student's health status to the whole school population. They have now become a target for bullying because some schools are, are trying, in fact, I heard this at the MVAC call the other day. The goal is, is to get some of students advocating for vaccines in their own schools. You know, so think about what a target that's going to put on a fellow student who's masked. Um, so I think, I think it'd be very interesting to see if that isn't a PERPA violation. You just added a student by virtue of your policy, and yet you're supposed to be protecting the health status of the student. So that's another option. And if you choose to do a FERPA um, complaint, the other things I would like your audience to be aware of, Pam, is you don't hire an attorney for that. Um, you file and you can go to MVIC.org again, go under our FAQs and look up FERPA. We have links on how you file. You have to file within six months. It has to have happened to you, to your student, okay? And you don't have forever to file. It, it looks to be a relatively simple process. You could get legal advice about filing, but you can't have an attorney file it. You have to file it on your own. Um, so don't, you know, I think that now it'd be good for people to get some legal advice on what their rights are and what their options might be in some of these situations of, of masks in school that are gonna out your health status, of um, how's appropriate rulemaking happen. Um, these are really good questions. And I think a lot of this is gonna go through the court system. Well, and going back just briefly to the emergency use authorization, when, and you mentioned you know, that it requires that you be informed of the consequences. When I read that FDA law, I read that as you're offered an emergency use authorized drug, you're informed of the benefits and risks, potentially what is known, and the informed of your consequences, I read it as consequences potentially if you don't take the drug like to your health. I, I don't read that as, well, and if you don't, don't take it, then we, we could do all these, you know, public sanctions against you or employment sanctions against you. So I would just encourage people before maybe they have that legal conversation to go read what the FDA says about emergency use authorized drugs, because I also want to point out that not only is the vaccine under EUA, but so is the mask and the PCR test. So you're saying, well, I don't want this emergency use authorized drug. Okay, well then now you have to take the emergency use authorized mask. Wait a minute, that's not what I read <laughs> in the law. <laughs> so, or you know these other things. So get a good like understanding of what the FDA has established in the federal statutes. And it's a good point, Pam. It, it, to us, because of 1905 Jacobson, we think it alludes to states having consequences because mandates are made at a state level. So, um, but you, you know, it's an interesting perspective that maybe it's consequences of not, not taking that product. Um, you know, again, I, I think it's a vague area. I think people are gonna, I think it's gonna be fought out in the court system. Um, to define what, what did y'all mean by that when you said consequences? 
Um, you know, there are attorneys I've spoken with that have a real problem with EEOC stepping in and even providing guidance for an emergency use product. You know, they, they, they did this with, uh, they have it with flu shot. You know, once it's licensed, it makes sense. But an emergency use product, you know, that's an experimental product. That's still, it's considered an experimental product. And, and to mandate an experimental product goes against the informed consent ethic. Um, that, that, was, that was actually the foundation of informed consent. It came out of World War II. It came out of the Holocaust and the atrocities, um, the experimentation on people in the camps. Um, so it started as a research thing that you couldn't, you couldn't perform research on someone without their um, consent, informed consent. And then informed consent went on to influence all other parts of um, medical conduct. You know, so it's really appalling to think that we have this uh, experimental product that can be mandated because this is really still an experimental phase that we're in on this product. It's still in clinical trials. And when you get it, you're basically in the clinical trial. <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's, it hasn't been licensed yet. We are in unprecedented times, and I want to give the final word to Carolyn, I mean, because she is with our Christian Home Educators of Colorado. Carolyn, people are, what's the word, uh, in distress, under duress? I mean, they are, they are stressed out. I mean, what would you say to parents who just need, like, to end on a positive note, just a little bit of encouragement in these dark times? Oh boy. Well, you know, I'm going to say, just get your kids out of the public school and start homeschooling, right? <laughs> I mean, you can do it. That's what I want to encourage you. You can do it. We need to start thinking outside the box on all these levels, right? I mean, they've been doing it for years. They've been not even paying attention to the law. I'm not advocating that at all, but we do need to start thinking in different ways and how to maneuver you know, so we need to join together. Don't stop joining together and, and gathering. Just buy cost. Don't go to school, you know, create your own school, right? Yeah. Create your own the school. Thing you right. can do is also sign up for MBIC's advocacy portal. <laughs> um, because yes. the legislation isn't going to stop. You do have to think outside the box. There are many ways to protest. You don't like what's going on in public school, you don't want to be a part of that system get out. Not everybody's going to have that luxury. And I think Carolyn would agree, chime in Carolyn, um, while, while the homeschoolers got a little bit of a reprieve in 163, I'm telling you, they're coming back. They're going to scoop everybody up and the homeschoolers have a brief reprieve, but they are on the chopping block. I hear it talked about federally. Um, you, you know, they're going to come after everyone. That's how it's going to be. They're trying to figure out how they're going to get adults um, in registries and how they're going to enforce the recommended schedule for adults. Um, so COVID presents us a unique opportunity. You must advocate. You must start developing yes. relationships with your legislators. Don't wait for somebody else to do it for you. Um, there's no state you can move to you're going to be safe in. I'm really sorry, but it's happening in all states. So you're going to have to take a stand for what you believe in and protect your rights and, and expand them because they are eroding. Well, I will say there are universities where are, that are saying we will not mandate this. So give your money to these universities and these you know private schools, these um, homeschool organizations, the people who support your rights to choose. 
give your money to those people. That would be and stores, Pam. If there are stores <laughs> that aren't, you know, there are people I know there are groups looking at stores who aren't requiring masks and, and so on. You know, there's nothing that speaks louder in a capitalist system than where you spend your buck. Right. All right. right. And there's doctors that are alternative doctors that you can go to. You don't need to go to an, you know, American Academy of Pediatrics doctor that is pushing for kids to have masks in schools and to follow the vaccine schedule to a T without, without any sort of, you know, deviation. So they're in all areas. Um, we have choices. Yes. Thank you, Heather, for throwing the American Academy of Pediatrics under the bus. I really appreciate you. That was strong right there at the end. So <laughs> ladies, thank you so much uh, for your time. And I know the peeps out there are going to love hearing from you. You are everybody's hot topic this week. Everyone wants to know about SB 163, which we were talking about today. So thank you so much on behalf of Syria Shot, Heather and I, thank you for your time. Thanks for having us. ladies. Thank you. All right, well, that was a great um, interview. I knew it would be amazing. Oh, it was. I love those women. They're both so well-informed and Teresa's amazing. Well, they're both amazingly calm in, yes. in, in these rough waters. They are so calm and professional and, and diplomatic. Yes, I, can, I could learn something from them. Um, so it's time. Again, it's that time for my favorite segment, creepy news. Creepy news. Creepy news. And so this week, I actually, I'm going to change the format a tiny bit. I, I love have it. one creepy news. And then I have one concerning news. But <laughs> the concerning news, I think is really important for people to know about. So let's start with the creepy news. And then um, go from there. So I love that we have like a threat con for, for creepy levels. Let's, let's work that in next week. <laughs> okay. We could do that. <laughs> Maybe we could have a contest because contests are big right now. Contests yeah, exactly. and giveaways. Ooh, yes. we could have a giveaway. Oh, I might have two creepy news things, but anyway, contests okay. and giveaways. So, um, creepy news. Number one, it's an old, uh, it's an old, the old 2016. It is, it's a video that was passed around Twitter um, from the 2016 World Science Festival. Ooh, science. Mm-hmm, science and creep, creepy science. There's a bioethicist. I want you to, after I tell you this creepy news, I want you to remember the word bioethicist. Ethics. And then I want you to remember the word irony. And I want you to sort of put those two words together <laughs> okay. after I play this clip, okay? Bioethicist and ethics. And irony but irony. anyway at, at this 2000 world 16 world science festival this bioethicist matthew liao discussed how it could even help reduce humanity's footprint on the planet so i'm gonna i'm gonna play it and i hope you can hear it how it so it's a minute and four seconds so here we go so i'll give two examples so one is that uh people eat too much meat right and if they were to cut down on their consumption of meat then they would, uh, it would actually really help the planet. Uh, but people are not willing to give up meat. Yeah, you know, some people will be willing to, but other people, they may be willing to, but they sort of, they have a weakness of will. They say, oh, this, this steak is just too juicy. I can't do it. I'm one of those, by the way. So, you know, but so here's the thought. 
right? So it turns out that we know a lot about, so there, we have this intolerance to, uh, so I, for example, I have milk intolerance. Um, uh, and there, some people are intolerant to crayfish. So possibly we can use human engineering to make it the case that we're intolerant to certain kinds of meat, to certain kinds of bovine, uh, bovine proteins. And there's actually analogs of this in life. There's this thing called the long star tick, where if it bites you, you will become allergic to meat. Uh, I can sort of describe the mechanism. So that's something that we can do through human engineering. We can kind of uh, ad possibly address really big world problems through human engineering. Another. Whoa! Right? Human engineering. We can address real word world problems through human engineering. So, like, Pam, do you, do you think, like, I don't know, inserting some kind of like messenger RNA into a person would be considered human engineering? Uh, totally. Yeah. yeah, so this becomes a little bit more relevant, Mr. Liao's uh, idea. And so I, I went to his website and um, his homepage. And Mr. Science and Ethics, that's engineering people to not like to eat meat, which is really essential for all the B12 and vitamins. I mean, I just want to interject here real quick that as a person who has had anemia uh, from avoidance of red meat and has been told by a physician, you need to eat red meat <laughs> if you want to live. I mean, this is very concerning. I, and I'm not one case study. I'm like part of the human condition. So go ahead, Heather. Yes, I, I, I'd like to second that, but not, and also let's second that we are not all exactly the same and that our physiology is individualized. Like we have in, from, from even from women to men, you know, have a different physiology. We, we have different functions that require some different uh, nutritional input, right? So um, this is really interesting. So I, I wanna read this um, little, featured article that he has here, just, just to get you something. Um, anthropogenic climate change is arguable, arguably one of the biggest problems that confront us today. There's ample evidence that climate change is likely to affect adversely many aspects of life for people around the world and that existing solutions such as geoengineering might be too risky and ordinary behavioral and market solutions might not be sufficient to mitigate climate change. In this paper, we consider a new kind of solution to climate change, what we call human engineering, which involves biomedical modifications of humans so that they can mitigate and or adapt to climate change. We argue, listen closely, we argue that human engineering is potentially less risky than geoengineering and that it could help behavioral and market solutions succeed in mitigating climate change. So human engineering is potentially less risky than geoengineering. And I imagine if I were to think like, that seems absurd to me, but I imagine that the, the justification for that is that if you kill a few people while you do these um, human engineering experiments, then it's a lot better than doing like this global sort of um, geoengineering that might affect everybody. So are you, are you ready to sign up for Matthew Liao's um, human engineering experiments? Well, you know, I'm seeing some 
no, I mean, this is crazy town. I, I mean, but I'm seeing this parallel, you know, you have the whole fear of the virus to justify human engineering, right? With mRNA. And now you have climate change, imminent death. So to justify human engineering, and this is like the slow rollout, right? Like with the, I, th I mean, if you've been in this issue for a while, you know that this virus, uh, the COVID vaccine, all this was ramping up. If you if you weren't in the fighting for the exemptions and you didn't go through the measles, you know, outbreak alleged and the pertussis outbreak, I mean, you wouldn't know like this has been ramping up for a while. Those were just rehearsals for COVID. But here you have this human engineering rolling out with climate change, where I'm I'm also reading that we should have lockdowns for climate change. Climate lockdowns, yep. Climate yep. lockdowns, right? Yep. So it's on this parallel agenda where it's being rolled out to see how much, you know, they can get away with before the public says, wait a minute, you know, I think we're crossing some ethical lines here. Right. So yeah, it's like, well, people have already accepted that we're going to do some human engineering with this mRNA vaccine to fight the virus. So what, what's so much different than doing a little human engineering to make you not want to have a hamburger? It's not that big of a deal. It's okay. There's no well, risks involved. And here's the disconnect. Like, you know, it when only 5% of the world are farmers and 95% of us are reliant on them, that's a problem. And that's, uh, you know, there's a lot of environmental concerns with commercial meat supply. It's, it's not yeah. ideal. It's gross, actually. It is gross. Insane. But if all of us could just support that local farmer and buy a cow every year, or half a cow, whatever, how much meat you eat, and then it would then these environmental issues would go away, right? You wouldn't have these large scale commercial facilities that are known for inhumane and um, hygiene and sanitary issues. But it's, it's a choice we have to make. Do we wanna support our local farmers? I'm surrounded by them, I love it. Um, or do we wanna keep this industry going? Because what you're telling us, Heather, is that the industry is saying, well, this is not sustainable anymore. So the solution is to bioengineer your genetics so that you don't like meat. Whoa. What could go wrong? What? What could go nothing. <laughs> oh, this is Frankenstein stuff here. Oh, I, I, I don't even know what you're going to bring up next. <laughs> well, I just want to mention one more thing about Matthew Liao. I'm not going to go into it too much, but on his same homepage, he gave a TED talk with CERN. So that oh. should be enough to like, that should be enough creepy news right now. Right CERN. there. -E but, just Google it. We, we -E can Google the, um, you know, go, Google the opening ceremony. No, don't do it before bed and don't watch it with your children. But ah. um, so Ted talk with CERN is scary enough, but he talked about um, altering memories using neurotechnology. And I, I don't know, I, I watched for a little while um, the Black Mirror and um, that was a bad idea, but it, <laughs> it, this is sort of like one of those Black Mirror episodes where, and it's also like, you know, I love to, to remember the dystopian novels that, that go along with our times. Um, you mean predictive programming? Well, yeah, okay. And so um, that too, there was one where um, they, they all got a shot in the morning so that they wouldn't remember the bad things. And so they lived in this sort of utopia. And then there was one person, the, the giver, it was the giver, one person oh, that the kept the memories. 
That was a good one. Did you read that one? I did read, I tend to read them, all of these, because um, you get a lot more of the predictive programming from the written text versus yes, the, the movie version. And that one is like, you know, a junior high book. So it takes, you know, a, an evening. It's a, it's a fun one. So the giver. Um, okay. That's enough of the creepy news. Is that creepy enough? Uh, it's a 10 out of 10 on the creepy scale that we're going to invent. Um, it's a 10 out of 10 on the creepy threat count. Yeah, I think so too. All right, good. All right. <laughs> Well, you know, we're going to bring back next week another 10 out of 10 of, of like pretty current creepy news. So I'm going to get ready. It'll make you come back. Come back for it. Okay. That now was we're going to have the come back more creepy news. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is concerning news. And it's concerning because it happened yesterday or the day before yesterday. And it goes along with what we talked about today in our in our interview with Carolyn and Teresa. And um, it is a, it's, oh, the 21st. I'm sorry, the letter is dated the 21st and it's now the 25th. So that was like four days ago. And by the time you guys are listening to this, I don't know how long it'll be, but, but you know. Happy for the time. Several days, whatever. So um, there was a letter sent to Governor Jared Polis, Jill Ryan, who's the director, executive director of CDPHE, and Eric France, who is the chief medical officer of CDPHE. And this uh, letter was, is from the American Academy of Pediatrics, Colorado chapter, um, AFT Colorado, Colorado Association of School-Based Healthcare, Colorado Education Association, which are all- um, All our favorite people. They're all, yeah, they're um, unions, teachers unions, um, education <laughs> unions, and then Colorado Medical Society. And they have, it's this, I'm Obvious. just going to read this letter. So bear with me because every parent really needs to hear this right now. And then after we close down this show, you need to go do something about it. Um, this yes. is trouble. Okay. Recommendation for a safe evidence-based approach to maximize in-person learning for the 2021-2022 school year. On behalf of our statewide organizations, we respectfully, respectfully request your consideration for the most effective ways to protect Colorado students and educators this coming fall. Like you, we are actively working to ensure Colorado children will benefit from a healthier and more robust school year after the last 18 months of disruptions and challenges related to COVID-19. That means in bold, we must continue with efforts, especially in the school setting, to promote vaccination among those who are eligible while maintaining best practices around infection prevention, such as mask wearing and testing among those not immunized. While vaccinations have helped drive a significant decrease in COVID-19 transmission throughout much of Colorado, we must acknowledge that over 800,000 Colorado children are not eligible for the vaccine. COVID-19 vaccine uptake has been uneven across Colorado, many rural counties, and much of the eastern and southern parts of the state still have low vaccination rates. Children under 12 and other unvaccinated Coloradoans remain vulnerable to COVID-19 infection and disease. As such, we must remain vigilant in our efforts to protect them. Non-immunized children are at a high risk of becoming infected with each exposure and have a higher risk of severe disease if they become infected with COVID-19 now compared to 2020, because currently circulating variants are more contagious across all age groups and more likely to cause hospitalization and severe disease. 
Children with medical conditions have a higher risk of hospitalization and severe disease. Children who have mild COVID infections remain at risk for later consequences, including MISC and long COVID or post-acute COVID symptoms. Over 100 children have been hospitalized for Miss C in Colorado, and more than half of them are required ICU care. Children and adolescents with long COVID symptoms can struggle with symptoms that limit their daily activities for months after their initial infection. Unfortunately, we have a small but tragic number of Colorado children and teens die with COVID-19. These risks must be viewed in context of the significant disruptions that school closures bring. As strategies that help support safe in-person learning at school, CDC and the American Academy of Pediatrics continue to emphasize the importance of monitoring for symptoms and staying home when sick, testing for COVID-19, wearing masks inside for those who are unvaccinated, including children who are not yet eligible for vaccination, i.e. put the masks back on little children, quarantining when, it, uh, that was my aside, by the way, right. quarantining when exposed to COVID-19 for, for those who are unvaccinated, enhanced ventilation and the use of outdoor space when possible and continued promotion of vaccination, blah, 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 blah. It, emerging evidence from other states says consistent mask wearing, widespread regular testing of asymptomatic students, uh, school or cohort-wide testing in cases of outbreaks can help minimize the need for large quarantines of exposed students. And they go on to keep saying it again. We want mask wearing for unvaccinated students. Um, we can maintain a balance and keep kids in school. So Pam, that is a troubling letter. Um, the well, Academy of Pediatrics is calling for uh, marking children who are unvaccinated with a mask. They're calling for what may be, as we heard about today, a FERPA violation. And they are talking about testing asymptomatic, unvaccinated children, even though we know there's breakthrough cases with the vaccinated. So it's a majorly coercive bill or letter um, wanting that to happen. And the other interesting thing about that is the teachers unions pushing for that. When the teachers unions put the teachers ahead of everybody else for vaccination so that their teachers could be safe in the schools. So we know the teachers are vaccinated and so are they telling us that the vaccines don't work, Pam? What are they, what are they telling us there? Well, they're trying to sell more product and, and it's targeted at children as we knew it would be. Um, there's a lot of product on the shelves. And so, but I want to go back to what is normal. So people have a baseline before they accept this. Normal is if you have an exemption to a vaccine, first of all, this vaccine is not mandated. So there should be no need for an exemption. It's not mandated. There's a whole process to mandate a vaccine starting with approval, CDC recommendation through the ACIP, state level um, rulemaking, oversight by legislation and budget. And then, and then it's basically dictated to the schools that it's been, you know, put in, put on the books in our statutes. So none of that has happened. So you shouldn't even need an exemption from this vaccine. But if you did claim an exemption after a mandate, we were expecting some type of approval in the fall for at least, you know, college kids. If there were an outbreak for all other illnesses that we vaccinate for, you agree that you will withdraw your child from the school for 14 days. Um, so that is normal. So let's define outbreak. Is outbreak 
one case, one person in the entire school has COVID, that seems, um, that, that does not seem right. That seems like your kid will never go to school. We don't do that for influenza. We don't shut it down for, you know, one case of influenza. So outbreak usually is 7% of the population. So what we really need to do is for parents to be educated on what normal is. Normal is you don't need an exemption if it's not required and it can't be required under emergency use authorization. And if you have an exemption, you can only be forced by the state to leave the school and quarantine um, if there's an outbreak. Outbreak is usually defined as 7% of the population of your building, you know, whatever, you know, your building, your employer, your school, your town, whatever the circumference is that we're talking about, the population. And nowhere in our statutes does it say, well, you should also be required to do all these extra things and wear a mask. And I mean, it's just complete overreach. I would also and add that asymptomatic measles testing. That does not exist. That is not a thing. And so I would also add that all other viruses that we vaccinate for and bacteria, if you can show uh, antibodies, that you have antibodies, that is, that it can be offered legally in lieu of an exemption where you say, I don't have to quarantine, I have antibodies and I'm not sick. And so, and then I don't have to get the vaccine. So I just want people to know what normal is um, because we're in crazy town with this hysteria. Um, and, and I would ask parents to ask for the evidence. This is not evidence-based to say children are high risk, um, that variants, um, yes, they are more contagious. Mutations tend to be more um, transmissible, but less virulent, meaning yes, it's more easily spread, but always less fatal, less deadly. I mean, that is all, that has been true for all of time. So this narrative that it's more deadly and children are at risk, I would demand to see the evidence of that at my school. I, this is because we're supposed to be making policy on evidence-based decisions and all this screams of is discrimination, segregation, um, major FERPA, HIPAA violations, this whole masking and testing. Um, uh, we have to draw the lines in our own backyards. You can't fight everybody's battles, but you can definitely fight the battle at your kid's school or college. Yep. And that's what parents need to do. So um, you can look on Chalkbeat. Um, we can post that in our links. Uh, they have an article about it. And this letter is linked in that article. You can look on Chalkbeat and read this letter and you can talk to your school district about what are they gonna do next year. And it is very important to talk to your school district, your principals, your health department, the um, state department, write to the governor since the pediatricians and the unions wrote to the governor, CC the governor, CC Joe yeah. Ryan, CC Eric France, uh, CC everybody. Uh, because these policy decisions are, everybody's passing the buck to everybody else. We're following this person. Oh no, we're following them. No, they can make their own decision. We have got to get up and fight. I think people have a sense that everything is over because the summer feels normal and kids are out playing and nobody's in a mask and everything's great. And then this letter drops and these people are asking for a nightmare like next year, like last year to happen again this year. If you think that your kids are safe because they're little and they haven't had to wear a mask this summer, read that letter. If you think 
that you know your school is going to do the right thing read that letter we need to stand up right now like this second before you know school starts in august it's almost july so we need to get busy really really busy parents right because they're making policy right now for august start of school yep all right well that's fun we always end on such a high note <laughs> All right, everybody, we're having fun doing this podcast. We hope that you're enjoying listening to it and that you learned something today. And um, we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks, Pam. That's it. Bye. Bye.